All right. Well, hey, good, good to see you this morning. Thank you for welcoming me. Uh, as Ryan has, uh, David said, I am um, associate pastor at Sunset Bible Church. The last time I was here with you, I've been to your church one time before. Some of you might remember me, um, but came with Caxton and Liz Buru. Uh, who our church is the sending church for and you all support. So I appreciate your partnership there. And it's such a privilege for me to open God's word with you this morning. So I would ask that you take your Bibles and begin making your way to 1 Corinthians. As you find your way to 1 Corinthians, I wanted to read a story that was relayed by John Robb. He's the director of International Prayer Council and he formerly led prayer ministries for World Vision. This is a story he tells about World Vision employees now, it's a pretty interesting story, and I'm just going to read it straight to you, just as he relays it. But listen along. He says this. A giant tree stood on the banks of the Awash River in an arid valley in rural Ethiopia. It had been there for generations and seemed eternal. Unable to bring water from the river to the higher levels of the land, the people who lived in the surrounding area suffered through famines over the years. In their suffering, the people looked to the tree for help. They worshipped the towering giant, believing a spirit had given it divine powers. Adults would kiss its great trunk as they passed by. They spoke of the tree in hushed, reverent tones. And the children said, this tree saved us. When World Vision began a development project in 1989, including an irrigation system to make the valleys Uh, Parched earth bloomed for the first time. The great tree stood like a forbidding sentinel of an older era. It presided over the community of people, enslaving them through fear. The people were convinced that the spirits must be appeased by sacrificing animals and observing taboos. The world vision workers saw how the villagers worshipped the tree and recognized that this idol was a barrier to the community entering Christ's kingdom and being transformed. So one morning, the World Vision staff prayed. One of the Jesus' promises struck them as particularly relevant. If you have faith, you can say to this tree, be taken up and removed, and it will obey you, Matthew 21, 21. So they began to pray that God would bring down the menacing Goliath. And soon the whole community knew that the Christians were praying about the tree. Six months later, the tree began to dry up. Its leaves disappeared, and finally... It collapsed like a stricken giant into the river. The people were astonished. Your God has done this, they said. Your God has dried up the tree. Within a few weeks, about 100 villagers received Christ because they had seen his power displayed in the spectacular answer to the Christians' prayers. It's a pretty cool story, huh? And the reason I read it to you this morning is as we come to 1 Corinthians Uh, The Apostle Paul is going to be speaking about how he relied on a demonstration of God's power. And when we think about God's power, oftentimes our mind goes to miraculous events like this. But my question for you this morning as I read this, is this the pinnacle of God's power? When we think about God's power in our life, is this the kind of thing that we tend to think about? Because you see, Paul is going to use himself as an example today for the Corinthians and how they should live their life. And what we want to know is, well, if Paul was relying on God's power and he's relying on his ministry on demonstration of God's power, uh, we want to know what is it that Paul was relying on? What did it look like? Because it's going to tell us something about what it looks like in our life as well. So 
this will, this will be kind of a big topic. Now, today I'm going to be looking particularly at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just the first five verses, but I do believe any time I step into a passage, especially with the congregation I don't know, I, I want to give a little bit of background on where we are. Um, it's helpful to understand uh, the, the uh, surrounding passage and why was Paul writing Corinthians and all that. So I'm going to do a little bit longer of an introduction here just to kind of fill you in where we're at. Now, I understand that you all are studying through Galatians, so I don't have to introduce Paul to you. You know who the Apostle Paul was? Well, Corinthians was another one of his letters. It was written to the church in Corinth. And Paul had ended up in Corinth uh, during his second missionary journey. He spent about a year and a half there. And during this time, this fledgling church begins, but it wasn't without conflict and violence. Uh, the church in Corinth was a pretty messy church. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with a lot of messiness in here. Sometimes it's astounding what he's dealing with. It, it kind of would make us blush if it were our church. And, and so Paul's dealing with this, but you've got to understand something about Corinth. Uh, now, Corinth was an ancient city. It was located in this narrow neck that kind of joined two land masses together. And it became a hub, a hub of commerce. It became a cultural hub. Uh, it was a place that Paul saw was both prosperous, cosmopolitan, uh, religiously pluralistic. And the people there were accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers. And that day there were people who made their living on public speaking and they'd come in and they'd, they'd kind of woo a crowd and what their hope was, would somebody would come and be their patron and pay them. And then their life was kind of going to this rich person's parties and speaking and being the entertainment at parties. So this is kind of the culture. It was a culture of one-upping one another and a culture of personal pride. And it was also a place that was marked by the worship of idols, sexual immorality, and greed. It's a messy culture. And, and Paul uh, saw the church here. These people were a product of their culture. They were pulled out of this. And yes, they were redeemed. They were referred to by Paul as saints, but they still had a lot of messiness in their lives. God was still working on them. And so Paul is writing to very, very messy people. Now, the Corinthians as messy people, one of the things they struggled with was how the gospel of Jesus applies to modern situations, how it applies to social and moral issues. Kind of sounds like us, right? Uh, we hear the gospel, but we still need to figure out how does this apply to our culture and the issues of the day? Because the gospel we see is not just Christianity 101, the gospel is not just the thing that you believe to start your Christian journey, but the gospel is what invades our life every day and affects everything about how we live. And Paul is going to demonstrate this in this passage. Now, I'm going to read, while I'm going to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the first five verses there, I actually want to read a pretty big portion of chapter 1 because I kind of want you to see uh, Paul's main argument. Now, one of the big things that Paul has going on here is he sees there's a lot of division in this church. And you see that people had accepted the gospel, but they had forgotten how the gospel actually applies in a practical way of their lives. And you see, Paul's going to remind them of truth about the gospel, and then chapter 2, 1 through 5 is kind of the practical, here's an example, Paul's going to look at his own life as an example of this. So it's not, it's not separated from what he says in chapter 1. So I invite you to follow along with me in chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 17 and kind of read the entirety of the chapter. A lot of text, but you'll follow along with me and we'll talk about what Paul's getting at here. He says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low uh, and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, I want you to see what Paul is basically saying. A lot of text here. Normally, I'd spend a couple weeks just on this, but I want it to kind of be the framework as we step into the next five verses. And essentially, Paul is pointing to the gospel, and he's showing us two big things in the gospel. First of all, he's in a sense saying, quit relying on the wisdom of the world. Uh, the church in Corinth had bought into the wisdom of the world, uh, and Corinth itself was really big into wisdom. They were all about wisdom. That's why they were hiring public speakers, and people were becoming personal patrons. It was all about wisdom. And, and Paul is essentially saying, your culture's wisdom isn't what God's wisdom is. God's worked in a way to demonstrate that your culture could never come to God through its wisdom, and your culture has nothing to boast about because of their wisdom. So the gospel itself was a stumbling block to them. We'll take a look at that a little bit later. And he also says, quit relying on yourselves. Not only is your wisdom not going to get you to God, did God worked in a way that kind of showed how foolish your wisdom is. The foolishness of God is more wise than your wisdom. But God didn't choose you all because you are so impressive. So this whole idea of you one-upping one another and divisions in the church and all this stuff, uh, don't think that God looked at you one day and said, oh man, I gotta have that one on my team. And in fact, if this were sports-related, it would be like God choosing people for his team and the first people he picks is the people who would normally be picked last. Maybe that was you growing up. And God's going to go on and win the entire World Series with this group of people. Why? To show that it's all him. He gets the glory in it. All right? So that's the framework, all right? Okay, we're going to come to our passage today because there is kind of the idea, and it's a little theoretical at this point, but now Paul's going to give a personal example of himself, okay? Read with me verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Paul says, And I... When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Uh, Before we talk about this anymore, would you join me? Let's go to God, ask him to help us as we think about this passage, as we try to understand it, and as we try to put it into our own lives, okay? So pray with me, please. God, we thank you that we can open your word before you this morning. You give us the freedom as a church to come together, to worship you with our, with our mouths, with a noise that we're not worried about anyone hearing. We thank you that we have Bibles in our hands that so we can open it and know you better because you revealed yourself in your word. This morning, God, as we read this passage, as we talk about what it means, as we seek to understand it, And then as we try to bring it into our own lives, and God, I would just pray, first of all, that you would uh, not allow us to be people who just gain knowledge. Uh, We are not here, oh God, to fill our heads with more information. But God, I would ask that you would speak to our hearts and reveal areas in our lives where we need you, where we need the change, where we are relying on ourselves when we should be relying on you. So God, as we do this this morning, I would pray that you would be present, that you would be helping us and working in us, soften our hearts, open our ears. All these things require your work, oh God. I'd pray that in the words that I use, what I say and don't say would be directed by you, oh Lord. I thank you for the privilege of speaking your word. And so Lord, we pray this in your son's name and through the spirit, amen. All right. So let's take a look at this. Here, Paul is uh, using himself as an example, and whereas he has just kind of talked to the Corinthians and said, hey, quit relying on yourselves. Don't act like you got it all together. Uh, Don't forget the gospel uh, and how it, it affects your life. He then uses his own life as an example. Now, I said earlier, the gospel is not just Christianity 101. We accept it, and then we move on. Every day invades our lives. Every day it affects us. And Paul's showing that when he came to them, he's reminding them that these truths he just talked about the gospel uh, were elements of how he did life, how he presented himself, how he reached out to people. So Paul is going to go through, and he's essentially saying, if you would paraphrase this, he's saying, for my part, uh, in terms of all this, when I came to you, I was totally stripped of self-reliance so that God's power would be made manifest and so that your faith might rest on him alone, not on Paul. You see, what this truth meant about the gospel and how God tends to work, and he doesn't choose impressive people, and he doesn't bring his gospel by means of cultural wisdom, God operates in this way that so he gets the greatest glory. The, the outworking of this, the practical outworking of this, was that when Paul came, he ended up actually making himself very, very small so that he would provide an unobstructed view of the greatness of Christ. That's what Paul was after. And, and, and what we see here in Paul's example then is that's how the gospel should influence our lives. That's how the gospel should influence the Corinthians' lives, rather than them one-upping one another and fighting. And if I had read more of chapter 1, you'd see they were in these fights of saying, well, I follow Peter, and I follow Apollos. No, well, I follow Paul. And then he had a few saying, well, I follow Jesus. And they were trying to make themselves look better. And Paul's saying there's no room for that. When you really understand the gospel, there's just not room for that. Now, this was a world 
where people were impressed by eloquent speakers, impressive wisdom, and, and here's how Paul is going about doing this. How does the reality of the gospel play into Paul's life? Well, a few things we should see here. First of all, we see that Paul made himself small in the content, in what he said. See, verses 1 and 2, uh, he says, I didn't proclaim the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what's Paul saying here? Is he some anti-intellectual? Is he saying don't speak in any words that make any sense to people? Not really. If you look at the cultural context here, he's just not making it so he looks like the average speaker of the day. He's not trying to woo people with, with interesting sounding arguments that get so intellectual that people are dizzy and confused and think this must be the right guy to follow. Now, Paul certainly was a well-educated guy, and as we read his writings, uh, his letters in, in the New Testament, we see he had the ability to craft quite an argument. He, he crafts very complex arguments, but you see what Paul did here is rather than trying to convince people through fancy-sounding logic and all sorts of stuff, he did one thing. Paul preached a crucified Savior. That was the basis of his message. And he didn't base it on rhetoric. He didn't base it on philosophy. He, he preached this message, and he knew this, that a crucified Savior was a scandalous thing to the Gentiles. You saw this as I read in chapter 1 here. It was scandalous. And think about this. A crucifixion was a way of executing someone, and it was the most scandalous way to be executed it was reserved for the worst of the worst. And so to say in the first place that a God came down and died for you was weird enough for the Greeks. But to say, oh, and by the way, the way he died, well, he was crucified on a Roman cross. This was a scandalous message. And you see, Paul knew that for this message to be believed, there was this necessary offense within it. He couldn't clean this up. If people were going to believe this, it had to be a work of God. And that was one of the ways that God was demonstrating his glory to these people. It is if anyone's going to believe this message, it's going to have to be by God doing it. Um, now, for Paul, not only was it what he said, but it was how he said it. We see in verses 3 through 4 here, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. You know, it, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes uh, we might think of Paul as the most impressive guy out there because he wrote so much of the New Testament. But the reason that we even remember Paul today is in itself an act of God. I mean, you look at uh, Acts 18. Um, I won't have you turn there, but you can turn there at another time and read about Paul's time in Corinth and you'll see there that Paul, at one point in his time in Corinth, was so afraid that God actually had to give him a vision to encourage him to stay. Uh, he, he was really in trembling. It's interesting that if you look in 2 Corinthians later on, you see some of the criticism some of the Corinthians had of him. 2 Corinthians 10.10 says this. He's talking about what people say, and he says, they say, his letters, that's talking about Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech is of no account. There's something every preacher longs to hear, right? You know what? You look like a weakling and you're not much of a speaker either. And this is kind of how they're criticizing Paul. 
Uh, you see, he didn't come in uh, some big impressive arguments. Uh, he didn't come to try to wow a crowd. He didn't present himself like that. Why? Well, this is what the people in that culture were after. They were after the big impressive speaker. They were after the person who wowed them. But Paul knew that not only was the content scandalous, and there's no way that people would believe the content apart from God, but he also wanted it to be that there's no way that people would respond that their response wouldn't be the result of Paul's celebrity or their fandom. In other words, Paul wasn't winning fans to himself. He wanted the Corinthians' belief, he wanted their faith to rest not in the wisdom of man, not in Paul's wisdom, but he wanted it to be an act of God. Why? Well, in church circles, it's often said, you, what you win people with is what you win them to. If you read like a church growth book, they'll talk about, you know, if you create like a rock band, rock concert atmosphere in your church and get a bunch of people in your church, guess what you have to do to keep them in your church? You have to keep a rock concert atmosphere. What you win people with is what you win them to. And if Paul was winning people with his wisdom and his impressiveness and because they were, oh, you got to hear this guy, Paul. He knew that as soon as the next impressive person came along who was a better speaker than Paul, guess where the people were going to go? And what if that person wasn't speaking the gospel? Now, Paul knew that if he won converts through fandom, this would have created a very shaky foundation. He knew this. So what did he do? He didn't, he didn't clean up the message. He knew the message was a stumbling block. He didn't present himself as this big, impressive person. What did he do? Well, we see this in the next section. Verse 5, he, he's talking about what he did. Uh, let me read it again. He says this. Well, oh, let me start in verse 4 again. It says, uh, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What's Paul getting at here? What does he mean? He said, I didn't clean up the message. I didn't make myself impressive. Rather, I relied on demonstration of spirit and power. And we'll go back to the story I told at the beginning. Does this mean that Paul just went around performing miraculous signs and saying, believe in Jesus, and that was it? Is this what Paul was doing? Well, I don't think so. And I have several reasons to say that this must not be what Paul's getting at here. He's not talking about miraculous signs and wonders. Why? Well, first of all, it seemed very odd that Paul would rely, his whole ministry would rely on miraculous signs after just a few verses ago, he was criticizing not only the Gentiles for seeking wisdom, but the Jews for seeking what? Signs. And here's just one quick aside. The chapters and the verses, the numbers in your Bible are not original to the text, they are put there later, so, and they're very helpful. They help me to be able to say, turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, and you can find that verse very quickly. And so very helpful in that way, but sometimes they're unhelpful because we can get to chapter 2 and think, oh, new thought, new section. And actually, chapter 2 is not a new section. Paul's continuing his thought. So he just got done saying, hey, Greeks, they seek wisdom, Jews seek signs, and he's talking about how he did ministry. It'd make no sense for him to say, and so that's why I based my ministry not on wisdom, but on signs. No, he didn't do that. Second, if we read through Paul's writings, 
and see uh, how he treats this whole idea of spirit and power, we see that actually in Paul's mind, the terms are almost interchangeable. To have the spirit is to have power. So what Paul's getting at here is anyone who is a born-again believer, anyone who's a child of God, anyone who has received the Holy Spirit, has the power that Paul is talking about here. This means that you, sitting here right now, you who are believers of Christ have the power that Paul's talking about here. So it must be something other than just going around and doing miraculous signs. Further, I, I look at a time period in the church where there was a lot of miraculous stuff going on, which is Acts. Acts has a lot of signs and wonders going on in it. And I've given you a few verses, I believe, in your study notes that you can look at, but one of the things that we see in Acts is that while the Holy Spirit often enabled people to do signs and wonders, it was only secondary to the Spirit's primary work. The Spirit's primary work was to help people be a bold witness. And we'll take a look at this in a little bit. You see, signs and wonders, God does miraculous things. He did miraculous things back then. I'm sure he did miraculous things through Paul. He still does miraculous things today, and yet that's not the Holy Spirit's primary work. And anytime there's something miraculous, God always follows it up with bold gospel witness. And so Paul wasn't saying, you know, I didn't actually explain anything. I said, just said, believe in Jesus, and I healed someone. That's not what Paul was doing. Paul was still explaining the gospel. He was still telling these people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a crucified Savior. And you see, the signs and wonders and things like that, they're cool. They're a great demonstration of God's power, but they're also very limited, and they're not the greatest demonstration of God's power. Now think with me about this. Just as basing your faith on wisdom would have created a shaky foundation in Paul's mind, basing your faith on signs and wonders also creates a shaky foundation. And here's why. Signs and wonders are limited in two ways. First of all, they only affect forgetful humans for so long. And second of all, they only demonstrate God's power in temporary ways. What do I mean by this? Well, think with me. Throughout the history of the Bible, uh, people who saw amazing signs and wonders. Think about the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt. They saw some cool stuff, didn't they? Put yourself in their shoes. Moses comes along. You see all of Egypt's gods embarrassed through all the plagues. You're delivered out of... Pharaoh's grasp, you see seas parting, Pharaoh's army drowning, you see walls of cities shaking, you see water coming out of rocks, bread appearing on the ground for you to eat, you hear the audible voice of God. How long does that help you be obedient to God for? Well, for them, they turn their back on God almost immediately, and guess what? I think so we would too. They weren't so exceptionally bad. They were human. And that, that right away, they turned their back on God, and that kind of began the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years where they continued to turn their back on God. Uh, we look at other places in Scripture. Jesus, he did lots of signs and wonders, had a lot of followers before it. As he goes to enter into Jerusalem for the last time, how many people stay with him? Most of his disciples abandon him. And then a few days later... As he's arrested, all the rest abandon him as well. Friends, I can look in my own life, and I've seen God work in miraculous ways. Ways where I just said, wow, that's so cool to see God do that. And then, how quick am I as a person to turn around 
in a new situation, a new difficulty, a new trial, and say, can God help me in this? I'm not sure I can trust God here. See, as humans, we are very forgetful. All right, here's the second thing. Signs and wonders only affect us in temporary ways. They're not lasting. They're cool, but they're not lasting. I want to read you a story here, another story. Um, This is a story related by Paul Hebert, or Hybert. He was... Uh, he died in 2007, but before his death, he was the chair of the Evangelism and Mission Department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he tells about something that happened when he was a missionary in India. I appreciate this story because he's very honest with us. He says this, One day while teaching the Bible, in the Bible school in Shamshabad, I saw Yalela standing in the door at the back of the class. He looked tired, for he had walked many miles from Munchintala, where he was an elder in the church. I assigned the class some reading and went with him to the office. When I asked him why he had come, he said that smallpox had come to the village a few weeks earlier and had taken a number of children. Doctors trained in Western medicine had tried to halt the plague, but without success. Finally, in desperation, the village elders had sent for a diviner who told them that museum, goddess of smallpox, was angry with the village. How do you like that? They have a goddess of smallpox there. But she's angry at the village. To satisfy her and stop the plague, the village would have to perform the water buffalo sacrifice. Village elders went around to each household in the village to raise money to purchase the buffalo. When they came to Christian homes, the Christians refused to give them anything, saying that it was against their religious beliefs. The leaders were angry, pointing out that the goddess would not be satisfied until every household gave something as a token offering. Even one pesa would do. When the Christians refused, the elders forbade them to draw water from village wells. Merchants refused to sell them food. In the end, some of the Christians had wanted to stop their harassment by giving the pesa, telling God they did not mean it. But Yelela had refused to let them do so. Now, said Yulela, one, di- one of the Christian girls was sick with smallpox. He wanted me to pray with him uh, for God's healing. As I knelt, my mind was in turmoil. I had learned to pray as a child, studied prayer in seminary, preached it as a pastor, but now I was to pray for a sick child as all the village watched to see if the Christian God was able to heal. In that moment, what would you do? How are you feeling right now? You know, it's given him some pause. Well, he went along. He prayed for this girl's healing. It says, a week after our prayer meeting, Yalela returned to say that the child had died. I felt thoroughly defeated. Who was I to be a missionary if I could not pray for healing and receive a positive answer? However, a few weeks later, he returned with a sense of triumph. How can you be so happy after the child died? I asked. This is what Yalela says. The village would have acknowledged the power of our God had he healed the child. But they knew in the end she would have to die. When they saw in the funeral our hope of resurrection and reunion in heaven, they saw an even greater victory, a victory over death itself, and they have begun to talk about the Christian way. I began to realize in a new way that true answers to prayer are those that bring the greatest glory to God, not that satisfy my immediate desires. It's all too easy to make Christianity a new magic in which we as gods can make God do our bidding. Isn't that so like us? 
how often we think we know how God should operate. How often we get in our minds, God, if you did this, it would just work out so well. And what they saw here is that miraculous events, while being amazing, only affect people in temporary ways. Here's a statistic for you. Every person miraculously healed by God has gotten sick again. Every person miraculously healed by God has eventually died. That's not that we don't pray for healing. It's not that we don't rejoice when we see it. But you see, a person who healed will eventually get sick again. But when a person's whole identity changes, when they become a testimony of something lasting and eternal in that moment, not only is God's power most evident, but it's seen in somebody that a watching world can relate to. See, here's the greatest power. The greatest way that God demonstrates his power is not through signs and wonders, but through his people. A changed life that confounds human wisdom. And that's who Paul was. For Paul, the greatest demonstration of God's power was that the persecutor of the church had become the apostle of the church. This guy who had hunted Christians down was now the guy that God sent and chosen as the tool to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so as Paul comes before these people, his demonstration of spirit and power was the demonstration of a life that was changed. He wasn't living like a celebrity. He wasn't arguing like one of the wise people of the day. He was demonstrating a life of powerful change to these people. I want us to think about how this would apply to us then as well. And the first thing I want us to see is that today, all of this still applies to us. We must understand that still today, for people to come to Christ, it still is a work of God. Do you know the gospel is no less offensive today than it was back then? And to turn to God is incredibly difficult. Today, there's a lot of people talking about this thing called the backfire effect. Have you heard of this? Let me read to you what the backfire effect is. It says that when presented with facts that prove someone wrong, people will often become more convinced they are right. In studying this, researchers have found that having your identity challenged activates the same area of the brain as real physical pain and causes people to enter into a fight-or-flight response. Psychologists call this identity protective cognition. There's a fun phrase. What's funny is people have known about this long before doctors or scientists or psychologists were talking about it. In his uh, book of essays by Dallas Willard called Renewing the Christian Mind, he refers to this phenomenon as mind earthquakes. I like that one better, mind earthquakes. He says this, to change governing ideas, whether in the individual or the group, is one of the most difficult and painful things in human life. Genuine conversion is a wrenching experience. It rarely happens to the individual or group, except in the form of divine intervention. You see, just as Christ was a stumbling block to Jews and the Gentiles of that day, it's a stumbling block for people today, too. I have Muslim friends who refuse to believe that Jesus could be crucified on the cross. They believe he was a good prophet. They even believe that Jesus never sinned. They believe that Jesus did miraculous things, but to think of God taking a good prophet and letting him die on the cross was unthinkable. So today, Muslims believe that at the last moment, miraculously, God must have switched Jesus with Judas and let Judas get crucified. Talk to atheist friends. 
Many look at the gospel, at the cross, and they define it, they, they define it as divine child abuse. How, you're telling me a good God could do this to his son? What kind of sick religion is this? Other people look at it and they, they think it's an oxymoron to have a crucified deliverer king. You see, for people to believe the gospel, it's still a work of God. And see, here's the truth about the gospel. The gospel tells us, one, that to be saved, it's a complete work of God. I don't bring anything to the gospel. I don't bring my good works to God. I don't clean myself up a little bit before God. It's by trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And here's the thing. Just as we can't add anything to the work of the gospel, we can't add anything to the word of the gospel. That means any time that I'm tempted to kind of shape the gospel a little bit, try to remove the things that are a stumbling block to our culture, try to make it a little bit more palatable, then I am robbing the gospel of its power. Because for people to believe it still needs to be a work of God. It doesn't need to be a work of Tyler and his wisdom. It doesn't need to be a work of you and your wisdom. It needs to be a work of God. Okay, so that's the first thing that I want us to hear today, that for people to come to the gospel still requires God's work. And just as God hasn't changed how people come to the gospel, he hasn't changed in terms of who he uses to bring people to the gospel. See, God had chosen the Corinthians, and remember, he chose the weak, the poor. He didn't choose the noble people. He didn't choose the powerful people. He chose the weak because he wanted to receive the glory. He's going to change the world through these people who had no influence in society. Guess what hasn't changed today? God still uses the weak. God still uses the unimpressive. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me as well, okay? God still uses people in this way. And he's not looking for super Christians. And honestly, as I look around, I don't think there's very many miracle workers in this room. And yet God still demonstrates his power through you. And I want to encourage us in today to think about this. How do we demonstrate God's power? And as I said before, the most powerful testimony is not a demonstration of signs and wonders, but it's a life testimony that makes no sense to a watching world. I have a video for you, but I'm not going to show it. Joe, thank you for going to the work. Uh, in your study notes, I put a link there, and you can watch it. Um, but for the sake of time, uh, I'll go somewhere else here. One of the things that always stands out to me here in the book of Acts, early part of Acts, chapter 4, the church is going, the day of Pentecost is happening, uh, Peter and John are getting arrested. And, and I love this section here where after Peter and John are arrested and persecution is starting to happen, they come back to the believers, and the believers have this prayer meeting. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it's just, I love what they pray for. The believers, you, you think persecution's happening, arrests are being made, they, they'd ask God for an end to persecution. They'd ask God for safety, right? Well, no, here's what they ask for. Verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word, with all boldness. Isn't that amazing? You know, uh, one of my main roles at Sunset Bible Church, I'm the global outreach pastor, and I do a lot of work with people in the missions community. Uh, I do a lot of reading and a lot of traveling, and every time I hear about the persecuted church in the world today, 
Which, by the way, there are more Christians being persecuted today than any time in history. What astounds me is that when people are asked, how can we pray for you? Very rarely do I say, see anybody say, pray that persecution would end. Usually they pray, say, pray for boldness. Pray that we would keep our testimony. Pray that we wouldn't be discouraged. What kind of people ask for this? Are these super Christians? Well, they're not. They're just ordinary people, just like you and me, and they're demonstrating the power of God just like we can. And in our own society, our own country, we have the ability to demonstrate God's power as well. And how do we do that? Let me, let me throw out a few ideas here. When you as a believer, as a representative of Christ, refuse to take a job, or you refuse to do something that would give you a promotion, not because maybe it's something illegal, but because it would soil your testimony as a Christian, or it bring shame to the name of Christ, you demonstrate the power of God. Because you see, in a world that's watching you, a world that's consumed by money, that's controlled by money, where money is the main God today, you demonstrate that there's a greater power in your life. Mothers, when you go to the park with your children, and there's a Muslim mother there, and you choose to engage with her and be kind with her, you demonstrate to a watching world that's captivated by fear that you have a greater power in your life. Students, when you're in school, and a professor who is more educated than you and more eloquent than you, and you stand up to that because they're tearing down the gospel, and they have the ability to make you look like a fool in front of your peers, you demonstrate the power of God. Why? So we live in a world that's captive to what people think about me, to social status and reputation. And you demonstrate that there's a greater power. My friends, when you face life difficulties, when you experience disability or aging, suffering, sickness, and even death with grace uh, and hope that confounds a watching world that doesn't understand that there's anything more to live for than today you demonstrate that there's a greater power in this world. See, in all these things, your ability to do them is not in you. Your ability to do them is not in your strength. It's not in your hope of having a cool story to tell someday. It's God's power. It's the reality of Christ in you. It's become a living testimony, and I can tell you it's more compelling, it's more effective than than if God gave us the ability to just go around and work miracles everywhere. So what I want to do this morning as we close is I want to pray for us, and I want to pray for you, because what I don't want to do is to leave here saying, go out and try harder. No, you're to go out in the power of Christ. And I want to pray and ask God to give you that strength, okay? So would you pray with me? God, as we sit here today, having opened your scripture, I pray that you would work in us. How astounding, how marvelous it is that you would choose us. Lord, I don't know each person here, but I look at my own life and I often wonder, why, why'd you choose me, oh God? 
But God, as we sit here this morning, we realize that you have chosen us to do your work, to bring people into the kingdom of Christ. And God, I want to lift up this congregation to you today. Because God, what we have talked about today is not something we can do in our strength. It's not something we just try harder at. It's not the gospel. No part of the gospel says I figure this out. No part of the gospel says it's my strength. The gospel says it's all you, all you. And that happens when we come to you and that happens as we continue to live as your people. So God, I would lift up this congregation and I would pray that you would help them to demonstrate your power to a watching world in a way that makes no sense to people, in a way that makes people really pay attention, in a way that demonstrates that your power and your authority go beyond temporary things and extends into eternal matters. God, I pray that in this congregation, you would cause each person here to live in a way that has eternity in mind, to live in a way that, that realizes the truth and reality of the gospel every single day. God, I pray that as those who are here go into work this week, I pray that as those who are here go into their school this week, I pray that those who are here, wherever they find themselves this week in the community, I pray that you would give words of wisdom, that you would give wisdom to know what the right actions to do are, that you would give perseverance, that you would give strength, that you would give grace and peace, that you would give us love and kindness and compassion that goes beyond, O oh Lord, our own strength. God, silence our mouths when we are about to say something wrong. Open our mouths when we need to speak. But God, in all of it, I pray that you would allow this congregation to make your power known this week. I thank you for our time together this morning, oh God. We praise you and we glorify you because you alone deserve glory and honor and praise. And so we lift this prayer up to you in your son's name and through the spirit, amen.